Uh oh, what just happened? We're, we're good. We're still here. Was you? We're back. Okay, still let me just alive. make sure I'm all yeah. codeced up. Make sure the codecs are in the right I'm spot. I'm good. I'm good. For all your antics before. Good. Welcome to episode three of season four of the Such Nerds podcast. I am Jason from the United States, here with my co-hosts. Peter from Long Island. And Dan from Los Angeles. And before we get into chapter six and seven of Foundation's Edge, I think that, uh, Peter, you may have a little fan mail for us this week. Yeah, Jason, I've got some fan mail for you this week. This one is coincidentally targeted right at you. It says, Dear Jason from Florida, what did you do to Jason from Connecticut? Is this another Russell scenario? Signed, never can get too much of that ham underscore burglar. (laughs) (laughs) I don't make him up, guys. This is just a... I love uh, that guy. I, I don't know what you're talking about, Peter. I am Jason from the United States. So you've gone national? Well, well, are you denying my citizenship? I am denying that you look different since Jason from Connecticut mysteriously disappeared. I don't know who that guy was. Yeah, it uh, almost looks like you're wearing someone else's face behind your actual face. It's almost like it's a skin suit. I've just lost a little bit of weight, so, you know... The layer wow. that used to be under my skin is a little saggy. The horrible skin sag that yeah. comes along. Plus, you know, I'm a spring chicken, Peter. I'm not as young as you. And, you know, I don't take care of my skin like you apparently do with your rubs and your cucumbers, avocado mud or whatever it is. It's it's lead-based paint lead-based. and silver nitrate. <laughs> it's just silver nitrate white paint. Tin-based. Uh, it's my tin-based vitamin red paint. ointments. <laughs> I, I just chew aluminum as often yeah. as I can. So uh, do we have any other fan mail, Peter? Uh, I think we have some elusive uh, comments that we'll have to address behind the scenes, ladies and gentlemen. That's all I got for this week. So we'll be addressing some of the uh, quote-unquote class action lawsuits associated with Peterism on a different podcast. Well, so that sounds pretty good, Peter. Uh, Thank you for sharing that with us, and I hope that answer satisfies our listener. Can't get enough of that ham underscore burger. (laughs) It's burglar. 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 (laughs) Nicely done, Grimace. Yes. We can't take you anywhere. We're going to discontinue. We're going to impeach Mayor McCheese for that type of comment. Mayor McCheese. <laughs> how about the. I'm impressed that you remember back all of the. the big <laughs> Whatever you say, Fry Guy. There uh, you go. Well, that about does it for our fan mail this week. So, Dan, I guess it's about time for you to lead us through the events of these two chapters. Ah, yes. Thank you, Jason. So, two days into their space journey, Treviz and Pellerat have swapped conditions. Pellerat has settled into his reading while Treviz frantically scours the ship, fruitlessly looking for a hyper-relay. Some unlikely advice from Pellerat leads him to engage the ship's computer to confirm the absence of any tracking device. Treviz then engages Pellerat in the discussion of Earth's geographic signature as their hyperspace jump grows nearer. Back on Trantor, Storge Endeball is out for a jog when he encounters some local farmers. An argument ensues, hindering his appearance at the second Foundation table meeting. While the other Foundationers wait impatiently, Jendabal is rescued from his perilous circumstances by an unexpected new acquaintance. Dan, that was magical. Thank you for that. I hearted that. I heart your summaries every week. Mm. They really are the best. <laughs> They're concise. They're to the point. This is why you're the master of summaries. It's, it's called, yes. I think it's called elegant simplicity. 
Yeah, no, it was it was um, it, I thought it was pretty interesting right off the bat. I was, was looking through the chapters again and I was like when they first got on the ship, Trevise is like, oh, I've had spaceships before. I know how it works. Da, da, da. Pillarat's like, I've never left the house. You know, I'm terrified. And then the beginning of this chapter, Pillarat's like, hey, it's not so bad. Trevise is like running around like a maniac. But that was interesting. Trying to find the secrets. Yeah, that's a that's a funny uh, flip of the dichotomy. Again with the twos, right? It's right. Like flipping two, coins. Two, uh, that's like the counterpoints, right? The right. Counterpoint. Counterpoint or gap. So, you know, I thought this chapter was pretty interesting because it, it illuminated for me a little bit about, you know, the first three novels. And I think Isimov was pretty elusive about Earth, but in a few times referenced like these galactic standards that were basically Earth system-based standards. Yep. And he really goes into a lot of detail here about demystifying these galactic standards as coming from the source planet. And it's just strange to me. I think they bring it up a little bit in the chapter that it would be forgotten where this standard came from, and yet it would be still perpetuated for another 50,000 years. I was thinking as I was reading that, like, you know, the 24-hour day, it seems like if there was like a 26-hour day planet out there, that would be like a better standard for me. It could be like two extra hours to do all the things that I can't do or a little bit of extra sleep that I can never seem to get. There's got to be a better planet out there that people would gravitate to that would have like a little bit more appropriate system to the human biorhythm or physiology that as we become more sedentary and we're not chasing our food around the jungles anymore, like we have a different kind of physiological cycle. I mean, so. there are places on the actual planet Earth where, like, there are longer days, and it results in madness. It's like with shorter nights, yeah, because it's the longer day with shorter nights, right? I'm not talking about that. So I, I also think that you need to not underestimate your own, like, productivity guilt, Jason. If you had an extra two hours of the day, you would just work an extra two hours a day. <laughs> Let's be honest, Peter. I'd be looking for new audio codecs. Yeah, podcast. <laughs> but it, it, I just want to touch on something that I've uh, you kind of pointed out that it, it was bizarre that Earth they would have forgotten where Earth was, or that it, these standards came from Earth, but yet they adhered to the standard. I mean, from like a biological evolutionary standpoint, like it makes sense. Like we're kind of we're evolved to a twenty four hour day, and um, I think there's one thing that the 21st century has taught me is that we are still very much the same humans that were, mm-hmm. you know, alive 10,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're still envious. We're still play, doing power plays. We're still being awful and, you know, also selfish, selfish but also communal and um, yeah. tied to the earth and affected by the weather or how much sunlight we get, our, our level of physical activity, nutrition. Like these are things that, you're not necessarily going to evolve out of. That wasn't really my point of this. Well, the point was, it's almost like Earth was intentionally forgot, right? Like it was, right. it was like erased intentionally right. from mm-hmm. history. Again, that kind of feeds into like this theory of like the third foundation. Maybe it's Earthlings are like the third foundationers. Are you wondering when um, our shut-in is just going to like get hungry and like munch on his Nilla wafers? Filled with all his knowledge by accident. I just kind of like half expect him to walk that out. Yummy, like, that one like yummy wafer. Some, yeah, just steaming <laughs> in some take milk. Take a little milk tea and, and just devour it. Well, they don't say that. They don't say what the kitchen situation is like. They have they say there's a midday meal, but I don't know if it's like... Uh, and they have like areas. I guess it's like one room with separate areas or something like that. Or is it? do they have their own bedroom? I, I hope. Yeah, I think they have separate bedrooms. They have separate rooms. They're separate bedrooms. I just imagine it to be like almost like a supply closet in size. You know? Well, that's what's interesting. I mean, they when they talk about the ship, it's like literally like two chairs and like a little bit of room behind it when they first talk about the ship. But it seems like that one room has a computer and the other room doesn't. Like they have their own sort of private domiciles. But I can't really get my hands around exactly what the size of the ship is. But it seems now that it's like larger than I had originally thought. But – yeah, I kind of imagine it to have like a communal area, a piloting area, a computer area, which might be the same as the piloting area. And then they each have their own like small, you know, aliens size, like 
you know, domicile that has like a desk and a bunk bed. I was thinking like initially they're flying like a hot air balloon where it's like just a basket and just standing there. But now it's, it's clearly that it's, yeah. it's like no being on a cruise ship. That they can what bring. you're talking it's, about, Peter, sounds like a motor yacht. I don't think that, you know, space yeah, like ships small space accommodate that kind of like luxury, um, you know, accommodations, if you will. I mean, it's I'm thinking I'm, you need, but it's not. Not big enough to be comfortable at all. I'm sure you could touch both sides of the room with your I mean, arms. I, yeah, I'm thinking like a first mate's quarters, like size of a room, you know, like, and they each have one and there's two, you know, it's not, there's no room for passengers. No. There's barely room yeah, for So, luggage. I mean, like, if he's looking for the hyper relay, I mean, how much looking could he really do? Exactly. Yeah, I, that was, that part I struggled with it a little bit because he like he just resorted ultimately to the computer. It's like, oh, like I've never really used computers before, and it's like, I guess like Eismov's timing the computer revolution to happen like fifty thousand years later it just feels kind of weird. Like, um, if he had been using computers all his life, then that shouldn't have been such a weird, you know, realization. Yeah, but I think it, he kind of tied himself in a knot because he's not used computers. He doesn't know anything about computers. So it, right. it's almost like if he probably was like, oh, he's using computers all his life. And he just turns the crank and then like starts talking about how he's using right. it. It just makes it look <laughs> absolutely ridiculous because that's that's not how, you know, 50,000 years in the future computer would work. Right. I think I, like the point we brought up before about how like we talked about Herbert and how he doesn't really engage in that type of stuff. It's because yeah. – you get that that exact fallacy where you're, you can't really describe it in any detail because you're bound to be 100% wrong. Right. And that's the difference between science fantasy and science fiction, right? So the thing that really, you know, like keeps coming out of these conversations that they have about the galaxy and the computers and stuff is like they keep saying like, yeah, it's imperfect and it doesn't have all of the worlds and you know, there's at least like, what do you say? Like 10,000 worlds that are populated that aren't in the records. And it's just like, mm-hmm. what? Like, they've why been basing, they? you know, yeah, it's like they've hundreds of years of progress down the Selden plan. That seems like a huge amount of variability that could be introduced if you don't have accountability of those, you know, inputs into the system. Like, if we're talking right. about the system mm-hmm. is humanity. Yeah. It's the interaction of the galactic, you know, forces, the forces within the galaxy. It, it just seems like, how is that even possible? I mean, it, you know that they're missing from the database. Add them to the database. Like, well, you know what I mean? It's like, it's been established that one guy, the mule, is enough to sort of like completely bring the thing to within an inch of blowing up completely. And it's like, oh, and then at the same time. There's just 10,000 worlds that just we have no no record of. No idea what's going on there. Nobody knows. You know, I'm sure those ones are all fine because, uh, you know. It, I mean, well, it would be what more they believable them to be like, like tax evaders. It would be more like if it was like we haven't reestablished contact with anybody on these worlds, like in any kind of meaningful way because they're stuck in an interregnum, you right. know, like – like that, I I could get behind that. It's like, yeah, we're slowly like expanding back. So like in a meaningful sense, like these are the worlds that matter because we've reestablished trade with them and therefore they could disrupt us. And in the meantime, there's like somebody else working on trying to reestablish all of the, you know, 10,000 worlds that we're missing, the contact with them, right? right? So they're like, uh, they're, you know, I imagine these are the worlds, like if I, if I imagine that the earth today is like a microcosm of this imaginary future galaxy we've got like you know this soldier who is living in the woods and the war's been over for 30 years and he's still like hiding from the enemy and right we've got like the siberian woodsman who's like you know left society at eight years old and has been living in the woods you know killing his own food for right. the past 45 years and like low priority like, targets. Yeah. <laughs> these like, you know, individuals who are just kind of scattered outside of the quote unquote system. Right. But at the same time, like there's technology even today to identify where those people might be and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it just seems Maybe in the 80s, we still weren't there, right? There was still like uncharted, 
you know, geography on earth and stuff like that. Right. They didn't have satellites flying over everything. They just had them flying over some spots. And they had an exact location of that random wood based economy place that the completely super backwater with the rusted out cars and stuff like that one. They, they, they knew exactly where it was and it's in the system. Right. So, and yet I guess these other 300 worlds are, you know, yeah, some of that 10,000, 10,000. Sorry. And they're apparently, they like it that way. Like the, the implication is like, yeah, and they like it that way. Cause then they don't have to pay taxes. Like who's, yeah. who's paying taxes to the dead <laughs> to galactic. Yeah, exactly. Galactic anyway. tax foundation. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> are they getting like, are they getting like their own subsidies from this like intergalactic, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm sure society. they're not because they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't dare to send the check even if they did, because they're not in the galaxy register system. And again, I'm sure their economies are so advanced that they would be contributing a tremendous amount of tax revenue to the, to you know, the. I mean, how many quadrillion people are on the main planet? Yeah, I'm sure this guy is. The question really I have is, like, how many digits would a social security number need to be? <laughs> <laughs> to account for all of the different social security numbers that they would need or you know tax identification numbers for all these worlds to be paying mm. their planet planet tax or whatever like mm. what, like what is that even like how is that even right, work? exactly <laughs> like we have an extremely complicated tax system because you know it's sort of a, a means of of how the system's set up like right. once it gets to a certain point it's like oh you would just collect point of sale taxes then you would basically say look we're going to tax x activity and we'll just it's this percent and it's straightforward and you don't have to need that bureaucracy because eventually that bureaucracy becomes so big it's unwieldy and doesn't work so like right. it's not like our tax system here is working fantastically um but it's because it's overly complex and it's impossible to manage and there's only what 320 million people here so and and, and like tranter right there's plenty of corruption to keep the keep the system complicated and unwieldy and unmanageable. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's taxed nu, nu, nucleic ashtrays at a 200%. It's like such a luxury to have a nucleic yeah. based. That's why we stopped hearing about it. Well, it's, you know, it's just it's like no one can afford to have a nucleic based ashtray that, anymore. That's what they don't say. Truviz doesn't say he went to military college and he studied gravitics and nucleonics. He talked, studied specializing in nucleonic tax policy for whatever military institute there is on in clown college, military college, wherever he went. Nucleic marketing techniques. Yes. Did you guys notice that when they listed off all the metals that were kind of like useful on Trantor that it got stripped of, that tin was not on the list? That's why it was so important for someone else to go find it, right? There was a, a shortage of it. Yeah. And the major hub so we, of we don't have tobacco anymore. We don't care about tin anymore. Like what happened to society? I don't know, man. Thirty years <laughs> really ruined this series for me. Yeah. What exactly? I don't even recognize you anymore. I did I was impressed that he like he recognized titanium and magnesium as important metals. Mm. But uh, yeah, well, at that point, like titanium, titanium alloys were becoming like you know more vogue, right? They were high tech and space aged, and but, and everybody likes fireworks. So you know, like as a young college crazy. student, like he just thought he was a biochemistry type guy, right? He just thought tin was the bomb. Like that's like clearly the most important, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you need that sweet, sweet tin. No, it's for, it's for, I mean, we did establish it's for soldering yeah. and things like that. Right, right. It's, it is, it is somewhat, but it's an important industrial metal. I mean, it's really important for keeping your leftovers fresh for about another 40 minutes. Right. Otherwise, you know, because you loosely wrap all of your food with it. Yeah, it's it's not even tinfoil. I know, <laughs> it's not. not actually any tin and tinfoil. Sorry, no sorry tin to report. <laughs> Sorry to report. Foil. Did they mention aluminum as one of the important metals? Probably not. Aluminum. I mean, yeah. it's just important Cheap here. Alloy, here, I'll list them. Cheap alloy steel, aluminum, titanium, copper, magnesium. Not nickel, but nickel is like hugely important in the space industry. Palladium. None of that. <laughs> nope. Nope. None of that. 
no, like, no palladium, no ceramics. Clear, like clearly, not a lot ceramics, of uh, like, not a lot of catalytic converter thefts on Trancher. Right, <laughs> all the precious metals we have here, not really precious Um, Not to like dwell on the Earth stuff so much, but you talked about people, Peter, being the same as we were back in Aristotle's era and all this early human history. Mm-hmm. And even before that, probably in tribal yes. days. And interestingly, they talk about like this case for Earth being the source uh, or some planet being the source of evolution because all the species are so similar across the galaxy that they couldn't have evolved independently. They had to evolve from a common source and it had to have been on one planet. Right. And then they have marginal. Uh, changes between some drift, locations yeah. some drift but it's they are still within one species but then he also talked about humans evolving i guess in mass because he's talking about like adaptability to these new planets mm-hmm. like they've evolved past the need for certain things and can survive off the rock planet with lichen you know eating mold and lichen soup and stuff like that i guess or like in uh, with- don't forget don't forget lichen bathtub jim that's the right. most important derivative from lichen we can make. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting. Like this whole, he tries to like pull in this whole evolution piece, and then it just again, I'm, it's still a little bit, a little bit lumpy for me, trying to pull all this whole thing together. I thought it was you know fairly well executed, and it's like, you know, I've I know enough like about evolutionary biology to be able to you know see the the string of logic. It's like yeah, of course. Horses came from Arabia, right? Or like, and so, and then from there, like they all spread out to the rest of the earth. The only animal, the only like animal that isn't, that isn't from that region that is like widely domesticated is camels, I think, possibly llamas. But basically like every other domesticated animal came out of this one region. And then, you know, of course, humans evolved out of uh, Africa as the leading theory, not once, but several times. Right. And that's why there's these like proto humans that you can find throughout like Europe and Asia and Africa and whatnot. So the idea that like, yeah, there's a, there's a central source and then that source from that source, they spread, right. It makes total sense to me. The, I thought it was clever how they tied in the things like, Oh, the, the 22 versus the 26 hour day, like the 22 to 26 hour day was like the range of planets that could be domesticated. Yeah. That are habitable. And that like, I guess you could theoretically live on a planet that has a shorter day, but it's pretty miserable or they're just not like suitable for long-term living. Um, uh, So I thought all that was, was really fun. And then, you know, I guess, at the end of the chapter, they come to the conclusion that they need to not be looking for Earth, but they need to be looking for Gaia. Um, mm. And uh, I thought, do you guys know what language that's from? Gaia, I think, is um, Greek. But I could be wrong. Yeah, that would be my guess too. Um, I'm going to speculating it. here. Should we should we submit Someone a request should, to the Such News website? <clears throat> yeah, we're going to try this new thing called uh, yeah. Wikipedia slash Google. Speaking of yeah. which. Yes, that is a great point. And like another note that I made is that it is great. Um, well done. <clears throat> nice. Like that's today's new, daily double, Peter. Like that's how I know that you we all what grew up before there was Google, right? Because kids who grew up since Google has existed and search engines in general, like they don't behave like um, like Golan did on page one thirteen of at least my version where he says, um, at our present speed and trajectory, I should say on our fourth day, uh, I'll have to work out the proper time on the computer. And I'm thinking like, like the latest generation, like wouldn't even try to speculate. They just, let me Google it. You know, they would just ask the computer first. So I think that's an interesting nuance as well. Like, the the way he writes it is like from the perspective of somebody who's never used computers until yeah, fairly recently in their life, not from like somebody who's grown up with it as a second, like yeah. second se- or another sense. Yeah. But even the quote unquote computer savvy guy, Trevise, is still 
you know, it's not really inherent in his, you know, it's not integrated as a second, second nature, like it would be with somebody who grew up with computers. And it's just, but again, there's no way he would even know what that would mean. Yeah, because it wasn't the thing when he was around, right? Right. So, and I mean, and maybe people would act differently if it took such a tremendous amount of effort to actually access a computer where you're like sweating profusely. You'll be like, ah, I'll, I'll look into <laughs> it like a yeah, rotate days. an image in space, you know, on yeah, the computer. I'm thinking yeah. like Physically spinning models in CAD. Will. It's like, you know, there's no, you know, effort involved. Yeah, it drains your life force yeah. as you exactly. like try the to use carpal the tunnel. From world's my, yes, yeah. Yeah. world's strongest seven. computer scientist competition. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I think you know we should probably talk a little bit about the you know the next chapter. Oh, Farmer, absolutely! Right. I, I was looking forward to about talking to this one. I was like, because, I don't know how much we're going to be able to talk about Earth, but you know, yeah. Ball. I mean, it's there's a lot, a lot there. I mean, the, the part where they talk about what the earth is and how it breaks down is interesting. But other than that, it's like, he looks for a relay and he says, yeah, you don't need one. I didn't find it. Hey, let's talk about earth. Let's talk about earth for a while. So in, in this chapter, you know, like we talk a lot about, um, you know, using the word sardonic and stuff, but I would just like to point out in this chapter that Isimov used a very special word. And you, Peter may remember, Dan, you may remember from listening to our season one, that this word is actually a famous word on the Such Nerds podcast as well. He talks about no one who came to Trantor for trade or tourism ever saw anything other than the farmers, plus perhaps a few unimportant scholars living in the past. And he's talking about like, you know, the facade of the of the second foundation as this kind of like, you know, these monks on this farmer planet of the abandoned Trantor. And then he talks about he says, move the farmers or merely tamper with their innocence and the scholars would become more noticeable with catastrophic results. That was one of the classic demonstrations which neophytes at the university <laughs> were expected to work out for themselves. It's been a little while. Yeah. yeah. Neophyte. Yes. Neophyte makes a return. Fantastic. Well, it's uh, going back to your same point. You, you used sardonic once there, like in passing. I mean, you used yeah, to be that's what I was excited about. Three and four times a chapter, he just barely breaks it up. Like he's trying to, he's just to throwing the crowd a bone. It, it just, <laughs> like, oh, here you go. With the sardon heads. <laughs> sardonic. Well, I think like, hey, bravo. You know, sardonic, it's, it was like our our uh, indicator of first foundation, right? Was the sardonic behavior. But now it's like full-fledged second foundations, sardonic as they come, right? Yeah. Lofty There's a certain condescension to look at these small people running around doing, you know, whatever it is they busy their regular lives with. And I'm off yogging, as the saying goes. Yeah. yeah. Is, it a, so, is it a soft J? Or is yeah, it a, sometimes. I think it's pretty Clear indication yogging. of the 80s. There was like a huge wave of like jogging became, <laughs> you know, crazy popular i didn't even 80s. think about that that's yeah. hilarious he's wearing he's like, like it jumped out like at me like oh he definitely wrote this gym. in the early 80s like <laughs> never talked about exercise before all of a sudden you know all of a sudden we yeah got he put on his cross trainers jogging and his yeah. specialized running suit right yeah store strapped his walk lane to his arm lane doing his right. calisthenics he <laughs> <laughs> gets roughed up by a couple of the street toughs. Right. Those Hamishes with their hands. Yeah, I mean, it's it very Hamish. sort of like, nerd. <laughs> Where are you going, <laughs> nerd? Exactly. <laughs> Bullying the nerds. Right. right. We're going blow for blow. <laughs> so they did say that Scowler. he came. Um, so we're talking about here um, Gendabal, right? Store Gendabal. Yeah. yeah. And they did the... say he's a bit of an Ubermensch. He's like, Kind of like got the larger planet, you know, stronger yeah. nature, um, dealing with heavier gravity forces. Mm-hmm. And then he comes to this kind of paradise planet of shards of metal and farmland. <laughs> it's like more paradise stoic. mining planet. Right? He's more stoic and he's like more elitist. He's like, I can't give away my edge. Yeah. Like, you know, and I love that they call them scholars, like in light of our conversation, because I was like, oh, it's just like a, you know, bastardization of scholar. 
But it's also like, yeah, there's probably like a lot of lofty condescension coming off yeah. of them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, sure. like, they're probably yeah. actually scowling at them. Yeah, they're probably like, look at this like knuckle dragging mouth breather walking down the road. Masses. You know, he's he's basically just mentally doing the you know doing the the evasion principle of his of his fighting operation. Um, <clears throat> but again, that's <clears throat> that's part of Gendable's thing. You know, he's he's uber uh you know he's uber ambitious and uh you know he i'm sure that comes with the weight of of uh you know pomposity that if you're just you know the sort of underling of the planet you'd probably want to sock it to him you see him jogging around like like uh some hoity-toity guy and they probably want to rough him up makes sense it just seems like a violation of protocol for them to like intermingle it all like to go anywhere near you know, like these, you know, the filthy masses that are the hands. In the right? end, they talk about them going out to town <laughs> to have these trysts with the, uh, with the, you know, the farmer peoples, right? It seems like it's like these, the second foundation is just falling more and more from ascetic monks to, it's just like a fraternity house or something. Like, these are guys who are just, like, elitist, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you can't come into our house. Like, this is a special house. You have to have an invitation and, like, we have to invite <laughs> right. you in. And, and anyway, but we can go out in town and just, you know, like, run amok and that's cool. But we don't talk about it. It's just like, you know, like, what the heck is going on here? It all turns out they're all tri-lambs. Like well in the future, <laughs> tridelts. Yeah. Hey, you can tell. No tri-lambs. That's, 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 that's the wobbly, wobbly javelin throwing. The, <laughs> yeah, that's the nerds. Second foundation. Fraternity. <laughs> Traditionally, nerds. Yeah, speaking of, that's exactly what I think of. Is that guy? Nerds. nerds. But yeah, so she was looking at him sternly, arms akimbo. Basically. Yeah. I can't believe I love it. I would seem more like, you know, but that, that situation where she's like, look, well, am I, am I allowed? I, I can write a letter. How would I send it to you? Live in this mysterious place. And he gives them the old, well, she's got to send it to oh, you. Just address friend. it to Speaker's, Speaker's House. house. So they call it Speaker's House. Their address is Speaker's House, Peter. Yeah. Right. Clearly, no numbers. No numbers. Apartment 27. Yeah. Yes. Just drop it in the mail. Speaker's House, Apartment 27. It'll get to us. What is this? <laughs> yeah, I was like, the wow, hidden second like foundation. They may as well call it like the second foundation of Selden's yes. plan, <laughs> apartment twenty-seven. Like, right, <laughs> like this whole like one second foundation way. It's obviously like never heard of like information leak theory or whatever it's called. It's yeah, like, <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. This planet, this planet is not on the registry of worlds, so they'll be fine. No yeah. problem. Yeah, oh, wait, it's it definitely is? not the old capital of the no. galaxy. No. It's fine. It's going to be fine. Did you hear, did you guys like some of the insults that they threw at him? Some of these farmers, they accused him yeah. of like being, so they're like, you know, they were giving him a hard time. He's a scholar. He identifies himself. Yeah. Um, he refuses to say what his business is. And then they're like, you couldn't just tell me you know, you're jogging. Yeah. I'm out well, jogging. No, they, no, apparently, you know, Bookmucker for, for his business be bu- be bookmucking and putter rubbing and pewter rubbing pewter oh pewter the rubbing computer okay. pewter yeah rubbing. I had highlighted so they rub that. the computer yeah yes. I was like yeah. Peter you do that sometimes mm. right? I'm like pewter mm. <laughs> <laughs> rubbing mm. say no more say no more right. I'm regularly Peter rubbing but it's not for true men putter no. rubbing <laughs> pewter rubbing. Maybe maybe he did know the future. <laughs> I just love that there's like a pretty girl that comes in and saves him. It's like, she's not pretty at all, dude. It doesn't strike me that she's that pretty. Um, she like talks a, about her like a, attractive figure. <laughs> yeah, I think you, let me read it to you, Peter, because I think that this will re- refresh your memory. He became he suddenly became aware of a small figure stocky with long tangled black hair and arms thrust outward careening madly into his field of view and pushing madly at the Hamish farmer the figure was that of a woman Gendable thought grimly that it was a measure of his tension and preoccupation that he had not noticed 
and not noted this till eyes told him so, which I think is also interesting think- that he couldn't sense this woman. He could sense every other consciousness in the crowd except for this woman. Uh, it seems a little suspicious to me. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. But and he, I, he says I just, nothing uh, about her being attractive in any yeah, way. Yeah. He says it after so. the fight's over. Gandalf stared after them, then back at the woman. She was dressed in, in blouse and trousers with rough made shoes on her feet. Her face was wet with perspiration and she breathed heavily. Her nose was rather large, her breasts heavy. At best, Gandalf could tell through the looseness of her blouse and her bare arms muscular. But then the Hamish women worked in the fields beside their men. Yeah, she smelled bad. Right. But but then she's stocky. So she's short. She's got big arms. Stocky and muscular. Tangled hip hair yeah because she was working in the fields man she could a brush and a bath will do this woman's wonders okay i guess we'll have to see we will find out because we're you know she's obviously some kind of mole or something yeah something's getting set up here something is suspicious and he and the fact he invites her back to his apartment (laughs) maybe it's on purpose yeah you know Maybe well, he maybe tells she, her where she he te- he doesn't invite her back. I don't think, right? Doesn't he just tell her? No, he promises he her a tour. Oh, that's right. You're right. He's like, oh, I'll show you the place. You know, she's like, I was always I wanted to see. I it. thought she was trying to send him a letter, and she said, "Where?" Well, she's I send like, "Yeah." Him, right? She wants to send him a letter, and then, um, but he also like offers to give her a tour, gotcha. or she asks her a tour, and then he's like, "Yeah, I can make that happen." She's like, but if I were to ask where you lived, like, where, how would I find you? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, between those those lines, like, he notices her figure underneath her loose clothes. Like, she's not wearing something revealing, right? And then uh, almost like a, a reversal of roles, right? Like, she's a hero who saved him. This, like, scrawny, weakling foundationer. Right. At least that's how I interpret him. Even though he, you know, fancies himself the hardiest of the... Right, yeah, that was also kind of funny too. It's like he he almost at blows, but he was like concerned about that happening, right? Well, he's concerned about it because it would blow his cover because it was like you know he's not going to take a blow to to the face, right? right? He's gonna he's gonna tweak his mind before he takes a blow to the face, basically, right? You know, so he wasn't ready to go, you know, knock down, drag out kind of situation. He was going to protect himself from physical violence, yeah. He, he wasn't ready to fight for his life right. and probably he should have been right. And then obviously like in a physical standoff, the huge orc, like, you know, Hamish, uh, man who works in the fields all the time, right. obviously ready to like annihilate this little nerdling. Right. So what do we think of him? Not like recognizing this woman, in the crowd until all of a sudden she's like ready to save him. Like she must've, if, if he was like truly a second foundationer, he would have sensed this mental energy coming from this person who's like ready to jump in and, and protect him from this homish. I mean, I, I interpret the intensity of the situation. Um, like, because he's being surrounded by like, several hostile people at one time and he's trying to focus on not getting punched in the face that it's not that he didn't notice her it's that he didn't notice that she was a woman right so it's like he's he's losing some of the subtleties no 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 he didn't notice her in in her entirety and then he when he recognized her he realized about what was what she was about like he realized it was this woman and she was like flying into his rescue but Dan, you were about to say something. What do you think? Well, he's like, he wants to be first speaker material. Like you figure he, you know, he should have this sort of like hyper judgment. You know, it's not even just like he's second foundation. He's like this sort of like second foundation wonder kid who like fancies himself better than the uh, leader of the second foundation. You'd imagine that he would be, you know, hyper aware in these types of situations. Didn't totally add up to me in that regard. Yeah, so yeah. maybe there is Highly some kind suspicious. of mental shielding on our. Uh, what's her name? Novi. Novi. Sura or Novi. Maybe. Sura Novi or Novi Sura or something like that. Right. It wouldn't be the first time that we had like a, a Hamish appearing person 
you know, who is actually an agent of, right. you know, something else, right? So Prem Palver, right? The, the second, again, the second foundationer is getting second foundation, right? It, it, she, she's put together higgledy-piggledy. Yes, yes. The other one I got. I underlined that one. Higgledy-piggledy, Hamish. There's a lot of like councilman of the first foundation does not go completely unnoticed. And of the foundation's mayor, I threw that all together rather higgledy piggledy. I'm afraid. Second foundation doesn't do anything higgledy piggledy. I think they use the word uh, spalp a couple of times. What? I, I wonder if I was wondering if they just misspalped it and they meant <laughs> to say something else. Well, I don't know. What is spalt? Can you give me a spalp. definition of that? Spalp. I don't know what it is. Yeah, that was one of the words they used. Yes, pewter rubbing. That was the guy's name, Ruferant, Carol Ruferant. I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe Novi's. Uh, I mean, maybe she's just swole, right? Maybe they lift from the third foundation. <laughs> swole. <laughs> she clearly is swole, right? Yeah, she's swole. She just got finished with a like a hard lift, and then she's like, yeah. "Oh, I gotta go! Yeah. I gotta go subterfuge this." Situation. Yeah. I need that geek. I can't let him get punched in the face. Yeah, because I said the the, the whole the phrasing through all that section. The farmer was approaching him, clomping down the road. It just seemed like a very bovine type of appearance. Yeah, he's just he's obviously like a huge oaf. Yeah, like it's like looking to like pick a fight. Exactly. It's ogre. I mean, it is. It's ogre. He just sticks his foot into the side of his own house. It's like nerds. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally like an oaf. Yes, like a village idiot. Right. And then so he tries to do, you know, in, in the typical farmer fashion of whatever, punch for like Rochambeau's him for it and whatever <laughs> people of the locals do. Um, and he's like, oh, I'm going to get beat up. I'm hoping by the last episode of uh, the Foundation series that this uh, this ogre like man uh, converts to be a tri much like in Revenge of the Nerds Part 3. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. Because clearly Revenge of the Nerds is ripped off of Isomoff. So I'm just trying uh, to, sort of ruin, started to ruin your uh, sort of presupposed timeline in your head. And speaking of ripping off, I think like there was a line in here about like it made no sense. I don't know why it was in here, but he talked about the underground cisterns. And all I could think of was like. Why did he have to say that? Like, is it just because that's like a central tenet of the Dune, you, you know, planet, mm-hmm. the underground cisterns? Like, you just had to say underground cisterns for some reason. Like you know, whenever I, I, whenever I hear about like underground things, I always think about the Time Machine by H, you know, H.G. Wells, yeah, and like how yeah, like the Luddites that. live in these cisterns, and that that's yes. like immediately where like my head went. Yeah, you know. It's like, oh, like they're the ones actually in charge of the means of production. This is the dangers of communism. Um, I think there's one other point that we should like just hit before we wrap it up here. This is actually, I think, an important, important point, not a joke, important point. <laughs> um, then why are we addressing it? <laughs> but they talk. I'm being serious. The end, at the end of the, while they're at the table, they talk about. Um, you know, the speakers is speaking and he's like ashamed that he's used the plan for like it to analyze an individual activity versus a group activity. And when they ask him like, you know, what is his basis? He says, I have no basis. It's just a feeling. It's like, he's, I think it's pointed for me because he's kind of undermining the idea of psychohistory that, there's intuition beyond like the calculation that that he feels should still be valid, but he can't quantify it through the psychohistorical mathematics. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, it kind of goes against like what I had an idea of second foundation to be, right? Like I kind of always interpreted it as this um like a more instinctual, more emotionally driven kind of society um, that like factored into how like large groups of people like worked in different scenarios. Um, And it sounds like, like my, what my idea of the second foundation was like and how it operated is obviously very different from how it actually operates. 
um, I figured, you know, <clears throat> one is very logical, right? So it's like this kind of dichotomy and human existence, right? Like you have your your logical analytical not mind, and then you have your emotional like gut feelings and intuition, right? And so I just assumed that they were two sides of the coin, right? So um, First Foundation is very technologically driven. It's using its lack of resources to force ingenuity um, on Terminus. And that's kind of what's helping reunify humanity. And then like the second foundation is going around like tying things up emotionally so that people continue to work towards things, right? Because people, you know, in sales, it's often talked about how people don't make logical decisions, they make emotional ones. And so the way that you appeal to someone's um, like want to buy something is basically you play into like their emotional feelings of, whatever right like of lack or of you know betterment or of fear um or pride like that's how you kind of like get someone to steer in the direction you want them to go right so then like you have second foundation over here kind of manipulating people emotionally so that everything stays on course with the logical technological advancement um and so the idea that like instinct is like something that isn't Taboo. quantified yeah or like acknowledged um, especially when you have like this hyper emotionally manipulative skill set like on an individual level right because these people are acting like with key people to manipulate them to get them like to stay on target with the you know the golden path what have you um, it kind of flies in the face of what i thought and how they operate it. And so maybe that's part of what third foundation does. I don't know. I like to talk about third yeah. foundation. Like it's a thing. I, I, the thing you're onto it because it's basically like, uh, you know, they have the prime radiant, like gigantic sort of like mathematical map and everything's just plotted out. And, you know, clearly that's, there's a certain degree of, you mentioned it before, going back to, you know, how the civilization sort of never really outgrows its sort of basis and basis, basis instincts, you know, the greed and fear and, and the like, you know, right. humans don't really operate in sort of a completely logical fashion. So the idea of using just completely straight logic to sort of plot out the future seems like it's wouldn't quite get you where it wanted to get, you know, even for all psychohistory's quote unquote benefits. You'd imagine that there's probably more to the to the puzzle than just that, and you know that may be very well what the quote unquote third foundation is is engaged engaged with as right. a differentiating factor. It would make a lot more sense that way. Yeah, and like you know, using I don't know, it's, it seems like it's figured out how to calculate mass hysteria in like ways to like yeah. move human society. And the, it's like well, the wisdom of crowds or lack thereof. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Mob mentality. Yeah. You're figuring out your flocks and how they move. Um, yes. But all then, about, like, it's all about tulips. You're selling tulips. <laughs> you might have to explain that reference for me. The, there's a, a whole Lithuania, thing. About like the, the 1500s the or whatever Dutch history, it was like a huge bubble and tulips became super expensive and it became like a, it was almost like a Bitcoin, like just yeah. like inflated in value and had no intrinsic value other than like mild aesthetic appeal. Yeah. But um, like, like Beanie Babies or railroads, yeah. like throughout right. periodically throughout history, Beanie there Baby speculation, manias and bubbles and sort of crowds have just sort of like bit up the value of a, a series of just unvaluable things just because of the nature of, of how humans operate within yeah. societies and the nature of speculation. Right? Yeah. It's like, Oh, well, basically I can't once, lose. Once, yeah. Once it starts gets getting the second second in, in direction, everyone buys it up and then it's just gets bit up and Oh, once it's certain, the threshold is hit. It's like, well, everyone buys it and no, oh, you're missing out. And like the pe people don't think like they think in herd mentality, they don't think like, Oh, well, let me look at the, you know, the fundamentals of such and such investments. Like, no, you just have to buy it or you'll be priced out forever. And eventually everyone's like, wait a minute, how much am I paying for this tulip? And the whole thing right. just collapses. But right. 
I mean, it's one of the core tenets of Peterism, and you know that's mm. it's part of our market. <laughs> I thought point. we were towing close to your line as far as the wisdom of crowds or how you appeal to them, yeah, right? Well, you know, I think we've we've kind of covered it. What we've read so far, it's a little bit of a cliffhanger in kind of both regards. I think because we've we've gotten a setup chapter out in space with the two our two, you know, knuckleheads. What are they? Golan and. Uh, Pellerat. Trepid Explorers. Yeah, yeah Trevise and, and, and Pellerat. Um, so our two fearless uh, explorers are going to go, I guess, straight for the jugular. They're just going to fly to Earth's sector and figure out where it is, right? And then in the wilderness or in the countryside of Trantor, Gandabal gets jumped by a uh, group of farmers, apparently... On a very highly unexpectedly uncharacteristic behavior, very strange circumstance concurrent with the meeting of the speakers and a diversion into uh, intuition from logic and mathematics by the first speaker, which will be obviously a setup for some other happening there. So a lot of setups across the board and uh, I guess more to come in the next episode. But um, no, it's 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 actually been a pretty enjoyable read. I can understand why someone. Oh, it's been great. Been great. You can understand how somebody could be tempted to read ahead here, right? Yeah, it's quite it's like, quite really come full circle. Like with to commend, I mean, I commend understand. all of us and with the willpower. So with that, folks, I think we will call it a day, and we'll see you next time on the okay. Suchners Podcast. Have a good night. Thanks for joining us. Have a good night. Bye bye. <laughs>